All of the Democratic presidential candidates have plans for tightening gun laws. But in early August, the gun debate came front and center. Back-to-back mass shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, occurred the week before most of the presidential candidates were scheduled to be in Iowa for the state fair. A gun control forum sponsored by Every Town for Gun Safety was quickly put together in Des Moines and 16 of the Democrats showed up. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg was one of the organizers. No guns for criminals. No guns for domestic abusers. No guns for those who are a danger to themselves or others. And no votes for candidates who stand in the way. It was an emotional moment at the time that intensified the debate around gun laws. Since then, Congress hasn't acted, and the Democrats campaigning in Iowa say leadership in Washington has to change. I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. From the newsroom of Iowa Public Radio, this is Caucus Land. The Democrats running for president are talking about guns on the trail. Who in God's name needs a weapon that can handle a hundred rounds? For me, real change, meaningful change, starts with breaking up the corruption in Washington, breaking the stranglehold of the gun industry and the NRA. One of these mass shootings is very personal for one of the candidates. Hell yes, we're going to buy back every AR-15 and AK-47 in this country. But gun violence in the U.S. is broader than mass shootings. It's a fact that every day in America, people are being slaughtered in communities like mine where the sound of gunfire is so regular. Gun rights advocates are steering the conversation away from guns and towards mental health. It isn't the uh, tool. It isn't the gun. It's the operator. We'll talk about how the candidates are addressing gun issues in the state with Iowa Public Radio's Katerina Sestarik. And later, a conversation with presidential candidate and Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. Caucus Land is sponsored by Cornell College and by Gravitate Coworking, providing flexible workspace for freelancers, remote workers, teams, or anyone sending emails from a couch or a coffee shop including those in Iowa for the caucuses, with premier co-working spaces in downtown Des Moines and Historic Valley Junction. Learn more at gravitatecoworking.com. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. The debate around gun laws isn't just happening on the campaign trail. People are speaking out at town halls with their senators in their home states. It happened in Iowa back in August. As part of my teacher training this past week, I was asked to listen to copy and then determine if they were gunshots or not. That's elementary school teacher Ellie Holland speaking to Iowa's Republican Senator Joni Ernst in suburban Des Moines. So my question for you today, Senator, is when can I plan to get back to trainings that simply teach children to read and write? Senator Ernst responded with her own story. Um, I remember going through all types of thrills as a young child growing up, and I know that there's probably some in the audience that remember the days that, you know, we were going through the Cold War. There were also people there concerned about protecting gun rights. In the past couple of years, mass shootings have been motivating more Americans to speak out about the issue and put pressure on their lawmakers. Iowa Public Radio's Katerina Sestarik has been reporting on how the candidates have been addressing guns. She's with us. 
Katerina, what's changed in this debate in recent years? Some of the most high-profile incidents seem to have really affected the conversation around gun policy. Especially when you look at the February 2018 shooting at the high school in Parkland, Florida, it spurred the March for Our Lives movement, and that activism from school shooting survivors and other students really captured the attention of elected officials. And we're seeing groups like Moms Demand Action show up at lawmakers' events, like that forum we just heard. Yeah, and they're asking lawmakers what they'll do to reduce gun violence. And overall, a majority of Americans believe the country needs stricter gun laws, and that percentage has been increasing over the past few years. So did the 2018 midterms give us any kind of an idea how candidates uh, would be discussing this in the run-up to 2020? Yeah, I think they did. Gun control groups outspent the NRA in an election for the first time in 2018. And some Democrats showed that they could advocate for more restrictive gun laws and still win. And that's kind of a change from past assumptions about that issue. And I talked to Cassandra Crefasi about this. She's deputy director at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Policy and Research. In the run-up to the 2020 election, she's seeing candidates propose concrete gun policies in a way she hasn't seen before. But I do feel like there is an increasing urgency among the American public that we cannot continue to accept the status quo as as an effective strategy. And I'm I'm starting to sense a shift uh, in that that push, that urgency and that push for some uh, action that's going to help us make a substantive impact on our gun violence burden. And let's talk about that burden of gun violence in the U.S. What's the scope of this? The latest federal data is from 2017, and it shows nearly 40,000 people died that year of gunshot wounds in the U.S. We're seeing the highest rate of gun deaths in more than two decades, and the U.S. has a higher rate of gun deaths than most other countries, especially compared to developed nations. All right. So for context here, that's about as many Americans that died in car crashes last year. Right. And mass shootings are happening more often and they're becoming more deadly. More than 50 people were killed in mass shootings in each of the last three years. That's when you define it as indiscriminate killings in public spaces where at least four people were killed. The nature of mass shootings in the U.S., the way they dominate the news cycle, it can feel like those incidents are causing the most gun deaths in the country. Is that the case? It's not even close. Suicides are 60 percent of gun deaths, and gun suicides have been steadily increasing for the past 15 years. And homicides are most of the remaining gun deaths. That rate has fallen since the early 90s. They spiked again in recent years, but mass shootings still only make up a small fraction of those. Okay, can you give us any specifics here? More than 23,000 Americans died by firearm suicide in 2017, and about 100 people died in mass shootings that year, according to one definition. But most Americans don't know this. Only a quarter of people recently surveyed by American public media said suicide is the most common type of gun death. And Katerina, part of this is just because guns are much more lethal than other means of suicide, correct? Right. And experts will say if someone who is suicidal doesn't have access to a firearm and they do seek out a different method, they're much more likely to survive the suicide attempt. It's also important to point out there is one big exception to this. Homicide is the most common type of gun death for African Americans. And the majority of African Americans in this survey were aware of that. And although Iowa is small and pretty rural, urban gun violence is still a problem here. Representative Akeo Abdul-Samad, a Democrat from Des Moines, knows that firsthand. I lost my son in 97, who was shot in his chest. You know, um, there's been a number of individuals that I have addressed and dealt with that have been killed by gun violence. So you're looking at trauma. 
I talked to Representative Abdul Samad outside of the nonprofit he runs called Creative Visions, where there's a mural dedicated to shooting victims. It lists the names of more than 200 Iowans shot and killed in the past couple decades in Des Moines. Every day that I come up and look at this mural, every day I walk into Creative Visions, I think about my son. He's right there. But I also think about the 210 people that we have listed on this wall. You know, it's something I now live with every single day. You know, I can't separate it. You know, so it's there. So when I go on Capitol Hill or or I'm here and I'm dealing here at Creative Visions, it's, it's here. It's in my mind, it's in my heart, and it's like, what can we do? You know, and especially when I hear a candidate talking about it, it's like, okay, how far do you go? Abdul Samad says he supports just about every gun control policy brought forth by the Democratic candidates. But he also wants to hear more about other things, helping victims of gun violence, dealing with trauma, fighting racism and white nationalism, and changing the mindset of fear, he says, leads many people to seek out firearms for protection. Here's Cassandra Crafasi from Johns Hopkins again. Gun violence is a complex issue. If it had one solution, I'm, I'm sure we would have figured it out by now. Um, so what we're going to need to do as a country and as states are put together a suite of policies and programs that are going to help us address gun violence. All right, let's talk about the Democratic candidates themselves and what kinds of things they're saying about guns. What are they saying, Katarina? Pretty much all of the candidates agree on universal background checks, on assault-style weapons ban, extreme risk protection orders, which are also called red flag laws, and limiting the size of magazines. And so the candidates largely agree on those areas. How do voters feel about those proposals? There's been quite a bit of polling on these policies. 80 to 90 percent of Americans support expanded background checks, nearly three-fourths support red flag laws and licensing requirements, and a majority support high-capacity magazine restrictions and an assault-style weapons ban. Here's what Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar says drives her approach to gun control. I always would say, does this hurt my Uncle Dick in the deer stand? Does this proposal make it harder for hunters? And for all of these things we've been talking about, of course, the answer is no. That's Klobuchar at the Everytown for Gun Safety Forum in August. South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg was there, too. He brings his military experience into the discussion. If I say that the M4 that I carried when I drove outside the wire in Afghanistan is like the AR-15s that are on our streets, some enthusiasts will fill up my Twitter feed explaining the finer points of how they're different. (laughs) They're not that different. (laughs) AKs, ARs, they have no business in our neighborhoods, in peacetime in the United States of America. They are for war zones. A majority of the candidates say they'd support some form of requiring a license to purchase a gun, and more than half would support registration requirements for at least some firearms. Okay, so we've got licensing and we've got registration. What's the difference there? How would that work? The specifics here can vary, but licensing requirements generally mean a person would have to apply for a license at a law enforcement agency, go through a background check, and maybe safety training before purchasing a gun. Iowa has this for handguns. Registration means a gun owner would have to record their ownership of certain firearms with a law enforcement agency. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker was the first candidate to make licensing part of his gun violence prevention plan. He mentioned that during the September debate on ABC. And I'm happy that uh, people like Beto O'Rourke are showing such courage now and coming forward and also now supporting licensing. But this is what I'm sorry about. I'm sorry that it had to take issues coming to my neighborhood or personally affecting Beto to suddenly make us demand change. 
This is a crisis of empathy in our nation. We are never going to solve this crisis if we have to wait for it to personally affect us or our neighborhood or our community before we demand action. We have some consensus from these Democratic candidates, but where are the disagreements? The biggest split among the Democratic candidates is on a mandatory assault-style weapons buyback, which critics call confiscation. Booker, former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke, and California Senator Kamala Harris are the only current candidates who say they support that policy, and polling shows Americans are basically evenly split on this. It doesn't have majority support. O'Rourke has said that he's evolved on this since the El Paso shooting. In September, he spoke about that at the Polk County Democratic Steak Fry. The people of El Paso, Texas are the ones who gave me voice to say, hell yes, we're going to buy back every AR-15 and AK-47 in this country to get those off the streets and out of our homes so that no one ever has to fear that again. Candidates also talk about raising taxes around gun sales, allowing gun companies to be held liable for their practices, allowing the CDC to study gun violence as a public health issue, and changing campaign finance laws to lessen the influence of the NRA. And where do experts come down on how effective these proposals are? Krifasi says a strong body of evidence shows requiring gun purchasers to get a license from state or local law enforcement before buying a gun is linked to lower rates of gun violence. She points out a few states, including Iowa, already have this policy in place, and these states haven't experienced any sort of mass gun confiscation, a fear often brought up by gun control opponents. And I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to how onerous is the process to apply for the license, and uh, sort of how well does it work to screen out people who shouldn't have them. And what we're seeing is that it's not onerous and they're effective, they're good for public safety. Krafasi also says strengthening the background check system is important and early evidence suggests red flag laws are helping to reduce suicides in some states and have the potential to stop mass shooters. We also hear about banning assault weapons quite a bit. What does Krafasi say about that? She says the federal assault weapons ban that spanned a decade starting in 1994 had a lot of loopholes. Defining an assault weapon is hard. There are firearms that look like an old hunting rifle but have essentially the same function as an AR-15. Krafasi says that restricting magazine size might be the way to go instead. It's a lot harder to sort of skirt the rules. Um, A magazine will hold a certain number of rounds or not. And some of our new research that we have coming out shows that State bans on large capacity magazines are uh, significantly protective against the occurrence of mass shootings. And it's important to remember that while we're having this debate about assault style weapons, most gun deaths are caused by handguns. And mandatory assault weapon buybacks are the issue that Democratic candidates are the most split on, right? So, what do experts say about that proposal? Krafasi says there can be a lot of logistical problems with buybacks. Some cities and states have had voluntary buybacks, and the government will end up paying people for old guns or guns that don't work anymore, just the guns that aren't being used in crimes generally. And any form of this will take a lot of funding. Cost estimates range from $700 million to $87 billion for a mandatory buyback. And that's partly because no one really knows how many guns are out there, how many of these assault weapons are out there. The government would have to decide how much to pay gun owners and how to define assault weapons. And getting gun owners to comply could also be an issue. Is there anything that Krafasi just says is missing from this discussion? She wants candidates to talk more about the responsibilities that come with gun rights. She says more than 80 percent of people support requiring first-time gun owners to go through safety training. And a focus on the safety training 
could help reduce unintentional shootings, it could help reduce theft um, through safe storage, and also um, just generally improve the safety of our communities by keeping guns out of the hands of like children and, and unsupervised teens, for example. Overall, Krifasi says polling on gun policy shows the stalemate in Washington, D.C. doesn't reflect the attitudes of all Americans. You know, we hear a lot that there are, there's this great divide and no one agrees on anything. Gun owners and non-gun owners don't agree and Republicans and Democrats don't agree. But that's a false narrative. We actually have a ton of policies upon which there's really broad public support and a strong evidence base. We hear a lot from people with strong beliefs about the Second Amendment. How are some gun control opponents seeing this debate play out? I talked to Wayne Nosbish of Rural Menlo. He's a farmer, a registered independent, and he voted for President Trump. We grew up with a shotgun and a 22 rifle, uh, using primarily for hunting, uh, although we uh, use them for uh, getting rid of uh, varmints like skunks and the like, which rabies is a concern out in rural Iowa. Uh, But at present, I own a handgun and a shotgun. To him, the conversation defaulting to gun control is disappointing. He says he would rather hear more about solutions for dealing with the root causes of violence because he believes it's about the person, not the gun. I would enjoy more of a deeper discussion. But uh, for them to automatically assume guns are the culprit, what do we need to do to, uh, you know, get rid of them? Or uh, like some of the presidential candidates uh, say, well, let's start confiscating. Well, if you believe in the Second Amendment or the Constitution, well, to me, that's a non-starter. And that's generally the view of gun rights groups like the NRA and its state affiliate, the Iowa Firearms Coalition. Nasbish says he supports background checks and addressing loopholes in that system, but with other proposals, he's worried that they'll trample on Americans' constitutional rights without really doing much to prevent gun violence. Yeah, and one of the things you regularly hear from gun rights advocates is that these kinds of policies would affect their ability to protect themselves, right? Right. And they often say that none of these policies will be effective. People will still get around the laws and commit crimes. But as we heard from Krifasi, there is evidence linking some gun restrictions to a decline in gun deaths, especially when they come as a package of policies. Whoever wins the Democratic nomination will likely be running against President Donald Trump. Where does he come down on these issues? His record on gun policy is mixed, but he's done more to expand gun rights than he has in terms of gun control. Uh, He banned bump stocks. Those allow semi-automatic weapons to mimic the firing rate of automatic ones. But he rolled back a regulation that made it harder for some people with mental illness to purchase guns. And then in the wake of some mass shootings, we've heard Trump express support for strengthening background checks, for raising the age for buying assault rifles. And he's even called on states to adopt red flag laws. But there's still been no movement on gun legislation at the federal level. Right. And Democrats who are running for president appearing at events in Iowa, they're quick to point out that there's been absolutely no movement on this in Congress recently. Yeah. For example, California Senator Kamala Harris called Trump's promises empty gestures. So really be clear about this. If he said, hey, Mitch McConnell, bring that House bill over here by getting it through the Senate, it would happen. It would happen. So I say put your money where your mouth is for all these people. And while several Democrats say they'll take executive action if Congress doesn't, they can't move forward with all of these policies without Congress. What's been happening since Congress hasn't been acting? 
For now, some states have been working on their own to tighten gun laws. More than a dozen states enacted red flag laws after the Parkland shooting. I talked to Drake University law professor Robert Rigg about this. He says that's not the case in Iowa, where gun rights groups have the ear of the Republican Party. He says they've been aggressively loosening gun laws here. If someone really wants to get a hold of a gun, not just in Iowa, in any state, they can get a hold of a gun. Uh, that's because they're just so available and so common. Um, is there legislation that you can enact that, that lessens that degree of availability? Yeah. I think it's, um, at, at least in their current state of politics, almost impossible. And we should note, Republicans control state government in Iowa. So big picture, while these Democratic presidential hopefuls are proposing some of the most far-reaching gun policies in a while, the issue is still steeped in politics. It is, but they're going to keep pushing what they see as ways to curb gun violence, especially if these horrible mass shootings continue to be in the news. Okay, Iowa Public Radio's Katerina Sestarek, thank you for your reporting. Thank you. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or contact the Crisis Text Line by texting TALK to 741-741. Coming up after a break, we'll continue our series of Iowa Campaign Trail conversations with Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. Caucus Land is sponsored by Gravitate Coworking and by Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa where students get a first-in-the-nation, hands-on experience with the political process every election cycle. Explore interdisciplinary learning at cornellcollege.edu. If you're enjoying this episode of Caucusland, find more coverage of the campaign trail by downloading the IPR app. Learn more about the candidates, read stories about their positions, and stay up to date on the race to the White House. It only takes a minute. Click the App Store on your smartphone and search for Iowa Public Radio. High-quality journalism is more important now than it has ever been. If you've learned something today by listening to this episode, make a contribution now at iowapublicradio.org. It's your support that makes podcasts like Caucusland possible. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. In late October, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar launched a bus tour of Iowa. This was just after the fourth Democratic debate in Ohio. Klobuchar's performance there earned her some good reviews and more media coverage. 24 hours after the debate, she had raised more than a million dollars. In the days after that debate performance, she traveled Iowa in a big green bus with Amy for America scrolled across the side. Her final stop that day was in Davenport. We've just been in really great spirits. Uh, one, the debate went well. Many of you watched it. That was fun. Klobuchar presents herself as a moderate and a pragmatist in the crowded Democratic presidential field. Midwesterners historically have a tendency to do well in the Iowa caucuses. That day, she earned an endorsement from State Representative Andy McKean. He was the longest-serving Republican in Iowa's legislature who became a Democrat in 2019. I don't just want to eke by a victory in the presidential race. I want to win big. And because the only way that we take back the U.S. Senate and send Mitch McConnell packing, right? And the only way 
that we win in the Iowa legislature and the only way uh, that we uh, win big when it comes to the U.S. Senate and win that Iowa Senate seat is if we have someone at the top of the ticket that can actually bring people with us. After her town hall in Davenport, we climbed aboard her campaign bus to talk with her. One thing that I've found interesting about the stump speech that you give is you will say positive things about Chuck Grassley in Iowa. <laughs> Uh, what gives there? Why do you bring him up on the stump speech? Okay, well, because I think that I have to be honest that some of the bills I've done uh, that I've passed or are working on, uh, including getting an emergency room designation for certain rural hospitals in Iowa, are bills I did with him. I disagree with him on a lot of things, um, including, of course, the um, um, uh, some of the handling of some of the Judiciary Committee matters. Uh, but I guess it's just an example that I find common ground where I can and I work with people where I can. And most importantly, where I think, which I think is key to some of my success, I do try to give credit where credit's due. And it's not like I'm promoting him. I just want to be honest. I'm in a state, and for me to say this bill was just mine when I've done it with him, or I passed the farm bankruptcy bill with him, um, I don't think that's right. And you'll see me mention a lot of other senators, Democrats included, um, when I talk about the work that I do. It's just the truth. And one of my hallmarks is that I'm honest with people. And so you mentioned his work in the judiciary. Of course, he was the chair. And for many Iowans, you know, they think of Senator Grassley, they think of uh, the Supreme Court nominations, and they think of uh, him sort of ushering through a slate of of judicial nominations uh, under the the president's administration. How do you balance those those well, associations? Well, I just so uh, deeply disagree uh, with him. Of course, I deeply disagree with the Kavanaugh hearings, how they were. Conducted. Conducted, and I was strongly opposed to Kavanaugh. I think anyone who wants to know where I come from on these uh, Trump nominees should look at how I handled the Kavanaugh hearing. Um, and I disagree with the march toward uh, these judges that I don't think respect the law. Uh, we did stop some of them uh, at the lower levels, um, but a lot of them um, just are not good judges and not judges I would ever even think of nominating. So as president, because of my background uh, as a prosecutor, uh, I would quickly put in judges that respect the law, judges along that uh, line of uh, Elena Kagan and Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg or, um, or uh, Jane Kelly out of Iowa, someone that I supported for the Eighth Circuit um, uh, that Senator Grassley did allow to go through. Um, and she was an Obama nominee. Um, and so uh, there are judges out there, and I just think we have to get them uh, on the court immediately because the, there's just no time to wait. There's going to be a lot of retirements, and I will be very good at getting that done just because of my background on the Judiciary Committee. And you served as a prosecutor, as you mentioned, in Minnesota's largest county. Um, during that time, you had a tough-on-crime approach, uh, fighting for longer sentences, uh, harsher sentences, more prosecutions. Um that is a trend that has contributed to disparate uh, rates of incarceration uh, by race in this country, particularly in the upper Midwest and in states like Iowa. Um, it's, it's very stark as well. Do you have regrets about that record? Well, actually, um, I am very proud of the work that our prosecutors did. And if you actually look at my record um, from that time period, um, incarceration of African-Americans, prison sentences went down by 12%. Uh, that is because I focused on white-collar crime 
And we saw a major shift in that. We started handling more and more of cyber crimes and um, uh, we put a judge in prison and did all kinds of things involving uh, major white collar crime. Uh, I also used drug courts, a huge believer in drug courts. I diversified our office. I um, worked with the Innocence Project and not only did a DNA review of all our cases, but also uh, started based on a research from someone from Iowa, um, a, a new form of eyewitness ID uh, professor here, where instead of showing all the pictures at once, you show them one at a time. Um, one thing I would change uh, if I could do this all over again, because there is systematic racism in our justice system, uh, the sentencing on the federal level, and Minnesota has, um, has its own set of disparities. I would have changed some of that. That wasn't in my power, but I would have changed some of it. I'm glad we had sentencing guidelines. I think that could make things more fair. But the other thing I would change is the way we were handling police-related shootings. Back then, um, it was thought to be more fair to go to a grand jury so you didn't let any politics enter. And, and I think it would be much better for a prosecutor to hold herself responsible in making those decisions herself. So um, the number one thing when I got in there the African-American community asked for was that we put the resources and the time into solving the cases of their little kids that have been killed. They'd been dormant. And we worked with the police and solved a bunch of murders of African-American kids and put the guys away in jail. Um, Byron Phillips, little kid sitting on his front porch, murdered. Taisha Edwards, little girl sitting at her kitchen table, killed by bullets, gone through her window. Um, I'm proud of that our prosecutors did that. And um, it's not easy to be in the criminal justice system, but it's an experience that I brought with me to the Senate. It's one of the reasons I was such a leader on reform, including the First Step Act. As a president, what can you do to undo this and uh, help with the racial disparities in the prison system? Well, um, I think the first thing is federally we made a major shift when we started reducing these nonviolent offender sentences. But 90% of the people are in state and local jails. So you've got to create incentives so that happens at the state and local level. Uh, the use of drug courts, and we're finally starting to do that at the federal level, but I think there's more that we can do with them. I was really, we had a very successful, one of the first big drug courts, um, started by my predecessor, but then I expanded on it. Um, uh, as president, actually, I would have a board of people um, who would advise me, a pardon board, basically, um, in addition to what you hear from the Justice Department. Because I think if you just hear from the prosecutors, you don't hear everything. Uh, as a, and that would be a unique thing. That hasn't been done yet. I came out with that proposal first before uh, anyone else. Um, I think that would be very helpful to do that and get some outside perspective on pardon applications. Um, and then just continuing to diversify the judiciary. As our time with Senator Klobuchar was up, we did get one last question in. What's the biggest difference between Iowa and Minnesota? <laughs> uh, besides the football teams and the Gophers yeah, like, and those things? Like, just uh, culturally, like, what, are you, what are you observing? I've often asked about the state fairs. I refuse to weigh in on that topic of what has a better state fair. Um, but I, I will know, be cheering pretty... for the Gophers in the football game. You had some up. pretty, I don't know, but you, the things you were saying about the butter statues in Minnesota <laughs> seem well, to, to be saying that the ones in Iowa well, are subpar. I mean, they were, 
Okay, so they were like in two different categories. So the Iowa ones were, oh, what's our new idea this year? We're doing a TV. Um, and actually, there was a very funny thing that happened. I was with Andrew Zimmer, the chef, um, looking at that exhibit of the Iowa butter carving. And uh, we were looking at it kind of, okay, what's this? It's a TV. And this little boy, he was four years old, came by, and he thought I was a fair official because I was standing there, you know, looking at it. And he says, um, Does, is that a real TV? <laughs> the butter thing. And I go, what does it look like to you? And he goes, well, it looks like it's butter. I go, yeah, it's butter. But what's inside it? And he goes, a real TV. And I go, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a real TV covered in butter. And I thought, oh, no, it's like telling the kid it's like Santa Claus doesn't exist. Um, but anyway, and so ours, of course, is sort of we have the same continuity every year um, with our butter carving. The difference that we have is you get to watch the butter carvings in real time as the um, woman, the butter carver in a down coat, carves princess k and her milky way their butter bus their so it's more transparent heads. it's more yes it's more transparent okay, yeah i it. would say that but now you know it's yeah it's, right. there you go senator amy klobuchar thank you all right thank you there are still many democrats running for the presidential nomination but there's one less in late october ohio congressman tim ryan suspended his campaign There are lots of experiences on the Iowa campaign trail. We'd like to hear your stories for our segment only in Iowa. Give us a call at 888-893-2036. Leave us a voicemail and tell us how to get a hold of you. Or you can email us at caucusland at iowapublicradio.org or tweet about it using the hashtag onlyinIowa. This episode of Caucus Land was produced by me, Kate Payne, Playmasters, Katarina Sestarik, and John Pemble. Our music was composed by Garrett Schmid and performed by Garrett and Aaron James. Our news director is Michael Leland. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. We also get help from our digital team, Lindsay Moon and Matt Searin. Subscribe to Caucus Land wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and share the show. Caucus Land is a production of Iowa Public Radio.